Is Miami really one of America's unfriendliest, unsocial, least involved, and least giving cities? And today is Good Friday, but it's also Passover and Ramadan. This is the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. The Magic City? In the next hour, we look at a federal study that makes Miami, once again, look more like the Surly City. We sit just about dead last in every friendliness category, from helping neighbors to volunteering to charitable donations. Why? We'll also discuss a subject journalists too often avoid, religion. As Christians recall Good Friday, Jews celebrate Passover, and Muslims observe Ramadan, it's a good moment to explore the state of interfaith relations here. All this coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. In Miami, we like to think of ourselves as laid back, fun in the sun folks. Well, we may be fun, but apparently not friendly. In a new Census Bureau study conducted for AmeriCorps, the magic city sits at or near the bottom among major U.S. cities in a host of friendliness and helpful categories. They include helping your neighbors, we're dead last, volunteering, next to last, charitable giving, next to last again, joining civic organizations, well, we're only third from last there. But the sad thing is, this is hardly the first time Miami's been tagged this way. And here's the kicker. All those northern Rust Belt cities like Boston and Philadelphia, where everybody's supposedly cold and grouchy, they rank at the top of the friendliness barometer. So can you explain why we, folks who wear flip-flops and shorts to five-star restaurants, are ranked more unfriendly than people who have to shovel snow? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. I'm joined now by one of Miami's best journalists and one of its friendliest, Linda Robertson of the Miami Herald. Linda, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Nice to be here, Tim. You grew up in the 305. Your articles capture not just the civics, but the psychology of Miami as richly as any I've ever read. So I paid special attention to your Twitter reaction to this study. You tweeted, and I quote, The worst thing about day-to-day living in Miami, besides the humidity, is the hostility. Every time you leave town, you realize how unhelpful, how unkind, inconsiderate, oblivious, and rude too many Miamians are. Now, as someone who watches SUVs blow through the stop sign in front of my house every morning, I can't say I disagree with you. So why do you think Miamians are so much the opposite of what outsiders might expect us to be? Uh, excellent question. Um, one of those questions that um, we've been asking for a long time in yeah, Miami. Right. And um, I think it, you know, it changes as the city is, is is always changing but i mean the the standard theories would be um first of all i think the language barrier here and the fact that this is a city of transplants of immigrants of a lot of non-natives snowbirds yeah. um transient tourists uh, visiting town and so you don't have the glue that you would have in, you know, Boston or Philadelphia or Chicago 
where people have spent their whole lives there and some of them in their their whole lives in the, in the neighborhood they were born in. Yeah. And um, so I think that contributes to this sort of sense of hostility and also kind of like uh, people just don't, they just can't relate to each other. And the language barrier is a big problem here because uh, a lot of people um, don't speak English or don't speak Spanish. And they, I think they make assumptions about who they're interacting with. Yeah. Or Creole, for that matter. Or Creole. Yeah, right. Yes. No, I, I'm really glad you brought up that the transplant factor, um, because that, that speaks to something that I wanted to ask you about here, what, what I would call the expectation factor. As you mentioned, we're a city of largely transients, uh, you know, people you're one of the you're a rare specimen linda you grew up here you're you're, you're you know a native we're a city of transients and people come here expecting it to be paradise then when they're hit with the reality the cost of living traffic the shrill politics etc it puts them or it seems to put them in an unpleasant and even unsocial mood is is that an accurate assessment do you think yeah, I think for people who move here, maybe it's a little bit of a, you know, a rude adjustment to the realities of it's not just a, you know, beach time every day and uh yeah. sunny every day and, you know, mm -hmm. this people think they're on vacation every day. Um it's a it's a tough place to live and it's yeah. um you're you're told that you don't have to pay a state income tax and then you turn around and see that you're going to have to pay $5,000 for hurricane insurance. Or more, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and it, and um, you know that little trade-off is made up for in many many other ways. We have the highest now. We have the highest uh, rental rates in the country. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we're going to get to that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and we have you know now we're contending with with the uh, sea rise and all the mitigation that we're attempting to do with that, and you know it's really 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 hot and humid here. <laughs> And um, right. and it's getting worse. That, it's getting worse yeah, with getting global worse. warming. It's like it's, it's getting hard to tell the difference between summer and winter here now. Yeah, there's no winter anymore. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you know, playing outside all day. I mean, we, you know, we yeah. were kids. We didn't think twice about it. But mm -hmm. um, it's definitely much hotter than, you know, mm -hmm. it was 50 years ago. So um, and then you just have this. I think people just distrust each other they're suspicious they're suspicious of each other they don't know their neighbors they don't yeah. know their neighbor's history you know mm -hmm. um yeah and, uh, and, and, of, and and we're, we're going to get to that and, and, and because that's one of the main categories they talk about in this study but I, I think before that we should also point out that this census study is not an outlier by any means i mean in the past decade or so miami has been told often that it's not a very nice place in 2016, travel and leisure ranked Miami the third rudest city, not just in the U.S., but in the world. Last year, a national generosity ranking placed Miami near the bottom of more than 100 cities. And it seems like every year we're ranked the meanest drivers in the universe. I mean, every night on the news, there's a hit and run story. So, so Linda, why aren't we getting the message after all this time? I don't know. I guess people don't care. You know, I mean, people don't seem to make an effort. Um, something that I just sort of do unscientifically is um, every time I leave Miami, I kind of like 
compare, I find myself comparing my daily interactions, you know, whether I'm in, I mean, I've traveled all over the place and, you know, people in Moscow are not particularly warm and friendly. Um, in Beijing, it's impossible to cross the street. Yeah. Um, you know, people criticize New York a lot, which I think is a, is an urban myth because I find New Yorkers to be incredibly helpful. They're mm -hmm. just in a hurry, you know. Right. Um, right. And but Miami, it's just I, I think there's, you know, there's also I call it oblivious, the obliviousness factor. Like people just don't seem aware of how mm -hmm. uh, rude and unfriendly they are. Um, you know, when you're out walking or running and you, you know, give a little wave or say hello when you're you know passing somebody on the sidewalk i mean they they look in the other direction um yeah. and so i don't i you know i well, don't know why we don't get the message that's yeah and that's unfortunate uh, we have ron on the line from homestead he's a sociologist and he wants to speak to the why question ron you're on the south florida roundup hi thanks for taking my call i appreciate it sure so yeah i listened to uh I've been here for 27 years. I've, I've always loved Miami, but I do I do think that there are specific reasons why you have Miami in general as not perceived as rude, but actually rude. And one of the dynamics that seems to be in the forefront is the the definition of what is kind and helpful and so forth is a socialization process. The United States has been known for a long time as very very friendly. And when we have a huge immigration um, population in South Florida that was not socialized in the way that we see as what is very helpful, very kind, and so forth, rather uh, people that had to compete for everything just to survive in many cases of a large amount of people that came here, mm -hmm. they, they, don't, they don't even know the rules. So you could have something like standing in line and let's say a public and you're getting ready to pay for the thing, the items that you purchase, and somebody will invade your, your personal space that five or six feet around you and then kind of push you out of the way and start putting their own products out. They don't even know that's rude. Mm -hmm. So in one way, they don't know. On the other hand, when, you, when Miami should be aware of this, but they make no public offerings on television or otherwise to say, you know, we have to – we have to be more friendly. Right. These are the things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So there is it's not not only not being addressed. The right. The reasons seem relatively mm -hmm. clear to us. No, that, that that's a good point, Ron. Thanks for that. I, I, I agree with you. Some PSAs uh, wouldn't be a bad idea in this regard. So, Linda, let's look at the four categories the new census survey lays out. The first is what it calls informal helping, which is essentially helping out your neighbors. Things like house sitting, watching their kids, loaning them tools, etc. I was gobsmacked to see Miami ranks last here. I, I've got my own notions about why this may be the case. But Linda, first, I, I want and you, you started to allude this to earlier. I, I first want to know why you think Miamians are apparently so unneighborly. Um, once again, I would go back to um, this just sort of stressful um, hostility in the air. Like every day you go out and, and you get in your car and it's like a competition on I-95. Um, and then when people come home, you know, they retreat into their gated uh, communities and close the door. They don't really know each other. And, and yeah. they... You know, um, my neighborhood is very friendly. People walking their dogs and their kids and, you know, chatting. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it, I think it really varies with where you live and how long you've yeah. lived there and what sort of effort you've made to get to know um, your neighbors. Yeah. But I think there's just this um, people just are suspicious of each other. Um, they don't take the time to get to know each other. Um, they make assumptions about each other. Um, and and we should think, say that Miami doesn't always do a good job of helping out that effort. I mean, for example, I mean, I, you know, you live in Palmetto Bay. Is that correct? I actually, I live in Coral Gables. Now. Oh, Coral Gables. Sorry. I, I live in Palmetto Bay, for example. And it's very hard to find sidewalks uh, on, on, the, on the streets. I grew so, up in Palmetto Bay. Yeah. I mean, Palmetto Bay and, and sidewalks are such a facilitator for going down to see your neighbors. Um, th you know, things. That, and, and another thing, I, and this speaks to what Ron, I think, was saying in his phone call. Um, the Latin American culture, I lived for a long time in Latin America, and one of the things I always noticed was this culture of high walls around the houses because th there's so much less public security in, in most Latin American countries than we take for granted here. And when you've got those high walls around, your, you, you're not going to really be, uh, you know, very neighborly. Um, and I think that culture gets imported here in many ways. Do you, do you think that's, you know, maybe a factor as well? Since yeah, we are such a Latin American city. Yeah, I think there's a high level of fear here that I don't sense in other places. Um, and if you go on next door, for example, I mean, people will post things on there like, you know, well, I was walking around the golf course this morning and there was a there was a white Volvo that was following me for at least a block. And then everyone reacts like, oh, you got to be careful. And, you know, you mm -hmm. should report that to the police and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out like, Somebody else, you know, came on and said, maybe he's an Uber driver or maybe somebody just looking for an address and just yeah. this immediate panicked reaction mm -hmm. and distrust, distrust of yeah. each other. I'm Tim Padgett. I also, you know, one thing I'll add is, you know, this is like the scam capital of the world. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another reason people, um, right. you know, this is the Medicare fraud capital of the world. So everybody like feels like, you know, can I even can I even trust this real estate agent, you know, or right. this this banker or this roofer that I'm dealing yeah, with because they're all trying to, you know, swindle me. We're very suspicious of every. Yeah, that, that's a great point as well. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about why Miami once again has been ranked one of the unfriendliest cities in America. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Now, two other categories in the survey speak to civic engagement, which is apparently a strong gauge of a city's friendliness and helpfulness. And again, Miami has a dismal showing. When it comes to volunteering, we're next to last, joining civic organizations third from last. Linda, what do you think keeps us from getting involved with each other? Another good question. Miami has also consistently ranked last in terms of uh, philanthropy. Um, yeah, and, and, that, we're, and we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. But, okay. but, but, but why this lack of civic engagement? Um, yeah, the lack of people just reaching out to volunteer. Um, I think those categories are more like, do you, um, instead of just informally helping your neighbor, do you volunteer with a local organization yeah. in your community? Are you, you know, going to meetings in your community? Are you you know, engaged in what's going on in, in your community. And we we consistently rank last there because once again, I think people, they're just disconnected from this place. You know, they just got here mm -hmm. or they, you know, they 
they spend their their winters in New York. And so yeah. they don't they're sort of indifferent. They're not to, invested in the community. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. they don't get involved in, you know, the local food bank or tutoring kids or, um, you know, the local voter registration group. Um, mm. They just don't like they just don't have a, a deep connection here. And so perhaps they just feel yeah. like. They don't want to get involved. They don't have time to get involved. It's easier to make an excuse about not getting involved when you're, you know, yeah. you got one foot here and one foot half somewhere else. Now, I should also point out the study cites factors such as income, education, and time. It says citizens in northern cities and states have more of all that than places in the south. And I would say especially Miami because our low-wage economy makes it rather hard to make ends meet, and that means you don't have the, the wherewithal and the, the education and the time uh, to get as civically engaged as we say see people maybe in Minnesota doing, right? Right, and you saw another one of the cities, uh, metro areas ranked low was Riverside, California. Right. And it's the same kind of thing where you have people working two and three jobs, seven days a week, just to make ends meet. Um, and so, you know, long commutes, um, child care issues. Um, yeah. so I mean, in, in Miami, when you're part of when it. you're spending more than a third of your income on rent, as is so, so, so often the case in Miami. Yeah. You don't have a lot of time to, to get involved, uh, you know, in, in, in the village council meetings. Right. And, the, the you know, um, I think economics is a big is a big part of what we're talking about here, you know, and um, people who are struggling to make a living and, you know, don't speak, don't, don't speak the, don't speak English well. Yeah. Um, they're, they're uncomfortable uh, even right. getting involved. Getting involved. Yeah. Now, then there's the charitable giving category that you mentioned earlier. And, and this is also very important. Miami comes in second to last there. Now, what strikes me here is that 15 years ago in 2008, the nonprofit charity Navigator ranked Miami the most charitable city in America. Now, we've obviously tanked since then. What do you think has caused that reversal? Um, that may have something to do with the way the cost of living here yeah, has skyrocketed. I would agree. Yeah. 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 Um, we have Diana on the line from from Dania Beach, and uh, she seems to think that the rampant growth here is responsible. Diana, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, I want to say that my family moved down here in 1972 when Miami was not really a big city. And I have to say that people were definitely friendlier and people did know each other and they did help each other. Uh, it was quite different back then because the growth wasn't that big in the city. But as it got bigger and bigger, more people came here. This became a very transit city. Yeah. And transit means there's no route. So people come and go, and like you say, they don't know each other, mm -hmm. and you know they don't trust each other. It is that way. But yeah. back then, it wasn't that way. Mm -hmm. And also, Native people who have been here, that are born here, are certainly a lot friendlier and a lot nicer as well. Well, I, 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 I don't know, Diane, if we could make that generalization. I know a lot of recently arrived immigrants who are very nice, very nice people as well. But I, I, yes. I take your point about how growth has has perhaps led to that rootlessness that we're talking about. But but Linda, finally here, whatever the reasons, 
This is obviously not good news for Miami's image, and it's not good for a host of other things. I mean, eventually the sun and fun isn't going to be enough to attract a talented people to this city if they keep hearing, as you put it, Linda, that they have to deal with hostility as well as humidity. So what are the potential social and economic effects a reputation like this brings to a city like Miami? Well, I got a lot of responses from people saying that they have moved out that they just, you know, couldn't take it anymore. And they've moved to places where they find it's 180 degrees change in terms of neighborliness. Um, So I think, you know, I mean, people keep moving here and we keep building and building and building. But um, I think the consequences are that, you know, there's going to be a little bit of a backfire effect where people are just going to get fed up. It's not too expensive. You know, insurance is too high. You know, we're all we have to deal with flooding when there's king tides. And and so I think people are just going to, you know, they're going to take off. We're going to lose, I think, a lot of our I think one thing we're going to lose is a lot of our long timers who, um, Mm -hmm. you know, are perhaps the most invested in Miami. Yeah. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen too drastically. Linda Robertson is a journalist with our news partner, the Miami Herald. Linda, thanks for helping us make sense of this. We appreciate it. Sure. Still to come, we take a look at interfaith relations as three major religious observances coincide today. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. For Christians, today is the Friday before Easter Sunday, or Good Friday. It observes the redemptive crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's recalled by Latin chants like Ecce Lignum Crucis. Muslims right now are in the middle of their holy and reflective month of Ramadan. Today, in any mosque, you're likely to hear a Tarawih prayer in Arabic like this one. And for Jews, today marks the third evening of Passover, the sacred commemoration of their divine deliverance from enslavement in Egypt. On the first and second evenings, the song Man Nishtana is sung in Hebrew at the Seder, or ritual dinner, by children. It's rare we see this intersection of faiths on the calendar, so it's, it's a good moment for journalists to do something we're usually not very good at, engaging religion. We should be, because faith drives so much of what so many people do and how they think, from raising families to electing officials. That's why interfaith relations also matter. Anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are at all-time highs in this country, and just this week we saw new religious conflict in Jerusalem. But the truth is, Jews, Christians, and Muslims have a Noah's Ark load of things in common. For starters, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are known as the Abrahamic faiths because their common patriarch is the Hebrew icon Abraham. I'm a Christian, a Roman Catholic, 
Joining me now is Eileen Prusher, who is Jewish. She was a Mideast correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor and Time. She's now a journalism professor at Florida Atlantic University. I'm also joined by Saira Anwar, who is Muslim. She's a reporter at WPLG Local 10 News, and like me, she's a native Midwesterner. Welcome, Eileen and Syra, to the South Florida Roundup. Are Eileen and Syra there? We're here. Thanks for having us, Tim. <laughs> okay. Hi, Tim. Thank you. No, thank you. What are your thoughts on interfaith relations in our community? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. To get this started, I want to wish you, Eileen, shalom, you, Syra, salam, and my fellow Christians, Pax Foviscum. Those are the most basic greetings of our three faiths, and they each mean peace, which I hope our listeners will keep in mind. Eileen, I want to wish you also Hag Pesach Sameach, a happy Passover. And I want to remind people that the exodus of the Jews from Egypt is a sacred story, not just in Judaism and its holy book, the Torah, but also the Christian Bible and the Muslim Quran. Eileen, why do you think that Passover drama is so compelling to all three of our faiths? Well, first of all, Tim, thanks so much again um, for having us and uh, engaging us in this conversation. Um, I think it is a phenomenally compelling narrative that has entered into Western and Eastern consciousness uh, as one of the quintessential stories of what happens to the ancient Israelites or Hebrews who go down to Egypt during a time of famine and the stories of Genesis. And by the book of Exodus, they've fallen into slavery and can't get out. And I think because so many people have been enslaved in our world and in our history, and of course, closer to home, African-Americans in this country, uh, and still it exists, slavery exists today on our planet, uh, this story of moving from slavery to freedom really is quite inspiring. And it is it is a dramatic story. Um, I think it's, for me, it's a story of deliverance, of faith, of survival against all odds. And, um, you know, on Passover, we read the Haggadah, this uh, book of all the kind of steps and rituals and stories and songs that you tell on these um, two nights of Passover. And this year, there was one line that really caught me that stuck stuck out for me. And it starts off with the words, Bakol which means in every generation, each person has to see himself, herself, themselves, as if they personally went out of Egypt. So I would say that before we had VR or virtual reality in the metaverse yeah. mm -hmm. presenting us with technologies to engage in alternative experiences through an avatar, we had this story. We had the Haggadah as a focal point for the Passover yeah. story. Uh, and it's using this word ki'ilu as if it, you should pretend as if you personally came out of slavery in Egypt. And that's basically saying you have to re-engage with this story every year. Mm -hmm. And I think it is compelling and it and it is something that is um, shared in the right. other uh, Abrahamic faiths uh, because no, it's you know it, it it relates to our 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 very essence of who we are. No, that's a nice observation, Saira. I wish you Ramadan Mubarak, a blessed Ramadan. Most non-Muslims know that during Ramadan, Muslims fast during the day and resolve to improve themselves, but they're less aware that during this month, Muslims recall the revelation of the Quran, the night the angel Gabriel delivered Allah's, or God's, first messages or verses to the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Can you tell us more about that? 
Absolutely, Tim. Uh, thanks for having me. I just want to start by saying I'm not an Islamic scholar. I am a journalist who practices Islam, and my Islamic education goes back to Sunday school and from my parents and attending lecture series at right. different it, But if, oh. if, if I'd wanted that kind of conversation, I would have invited uh, uh, religious <laughs> scholars. What I want is we are journalists. We are just like everybody else, and we're struggling to understand these things, and that's why I'm oh, yeah. so glad to have you and I lean on. Just had to have that disclaimer, but... Yeah, Laylatul Qadr is a night we uh, observe during Ramadan. It's one night that falls during the last 10 nights of Ramadan. So we haven't quite gotten there yet this year. But that's the night when where Muslims believe that the Quran was first revealed to our final prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That means peace and blessings upon him. And that night we believe is equal to more than a thousand nights. So on the uh -huh. nights where we believe Laylatul Qadr may fall, you'll see Muslims kind of going above and beyond. We try to be on our best behavior all of Ramadan, but during those nights in particular, we pray more, we're more generous. We're really trying to maximize our good deeds because like I said, it's equal to more than a thousand months worth of worship. Right. So we're kind of putting all those deeds in the bank. Right, So which, which is why, I, it's also, it's why it's also called the night of power. Absolutely. Laylatul Qadr means the night of power. That's the Arabic word for it. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's 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 a big time in Islam. And it's a time when a lot of us are just really trying hard to be our best selves, hoping that uh, we're rewarded heavily in the afterlife. Right. Now, the, the angel Gabriel shows up as a key messenger of God in all three of our faiths. And, and the core figures of Judaism and Christianity, Moses and Jesus, are mentioned reverently throughout the Quran. Eileen, should Jews and Christians be more aware of that bond they have with Islam? I definitely think so. Um, I think, um, you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of Jews and Christians are not uh, that familiar with how um, many similarities there are between the three faiths. Um, and because I spent a lot of time in the Middle East as a journalist, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, going to Muslim weddings and, you know, iftar, which is, you know, the breakfast meal right. during Ramadan. Every, and, every um, night. Yeah. Is the iftar. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like a beautiful party every night. Exactly. And, um, and seeing so many similarities, you know, from, you know, things surrounding marriage, dietary laws, you know, that, you know, that Jews and Muslims both not eating pork or right. even ideas about giving charity that are that are really part and parcel of the religion that are particularly important, uh, important at this time of year on these holidays um, and how, uh, you know, an emphasis on on justice um, and righteousness. And I mm -hmm. and I think that there are, are more similarities than we realize. And, mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, probably not that many people are taught about them. And, and sometimes, you know, people who, you know, extremists who grab the headlines, you know, sometimes leave an impression on people uh, that, that isn't the reality of, you know, the way the vast majority, uh, you know, of, of Muslims right. and Jews and Christians, you know, practice mm -hmm. their faith. Yeah, they'd rather see the clash of civilizations, as it's called. Syra, let me let me turn that question around. Are, are Muslims aware enough of the bond they have with Judaism and Christianity? I think we are being the youngest of the three Abrahamic faiths. We our our book, our Holy Quran, actually mentions Christians and Jews as call, calling them specifically people of the book. The book referring to the Torah and the Bible, right. mm -hmm. both texts that we hold as as sacred and holy. So, and we're told in the Quran that the Torah and the Bible have truths in them that were revealed to legitimate prophets, Jesus and Moses, and 
we are very aware of, of people of the book and that common bond that we have. And I think that's because we are the youngest of the religions to a point where we can address the faiths that came before us. Yeah, and I, I would point out to Christians, too. I mean, studying Western civilization is a big political thing right now in Florida, for example. I would point out to, uh, to Westerners and, and Christians that if it weren't for Muslim and Jewish philosophers like Ibn Rushd and Maimonides handing the classical learning of Aristotle and other ancients to European medieval philosophers like St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, there would be no Renaissance and we would not be living in the world uh, that we live today. So I, I, I just want to make sure that, uh, quote, Westerners understand that debt they owe to, uh, to, to Jewish and Muslim philosophers in that regard. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about religion, Good Friday, Passover, Ramadan, all being observed today. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, today, Good Friday, is the, de the day Jesus was crucified, which is then followed by his resurrection from the dead three days later on Easter. Christians believe that so-called passion drama redeems us and reconnects us to God because it confirms for us that Jesus was both human and divine, or the Son of God. But it also points up what I think and what the two of you told me you think is a key element that Passover, Ramadan, and Good Friday have in common, a sort of no-pain-no-gain theology that says you can't get to the light until you've gone through the darkness. Eileen, what's your take on that? Well, Tim, I love this question because um, during the Passover story, we talk about the ten plagues, and the ninth of them is is darkness, you know, and this idea of, you know, li living in darkness and how terrifying that must have been. Um, and I would say that, you know, what's really interesting about the Passover story uh, that I've come to realize as an adult is that it really isn't <laughs> just a story for kids the way some people think of it. Um, and, you know, the words in the in the Passover story, um, the Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, or in, in Arabic it's Masr. And um, in, in Hebrew, it has a root that also relates to basically coming through a narrow place. And it becomes, you know, some people say this is like a great, you know, kind of birthing metaphor, the entire story. Um, but, you know, one of the questions that I've seen people ask around the Seder table in the good adult conversations that go on is sort of, you know, when have you been in a narrow or constricted or difficult place and how did you get out of it? Apropos your analogy of going to, from dark to light. So, you know, maybe it's addiction or a bad relationship or a terrible job. And so when you look yeah. at the story that way, it, it really is a metaphor for renewal. Um, and mm -hmm. to me, that is something that really uh, speaks to, I think, you know, also um, the way many Christians experience Easter and the way many Muslims, uh, you know, have spoken to me about experiencing Ramadan, um, that, you know, there's something very renewing and cleansing and, and almost transforming about that period of time. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, turning a page and maybe asking yourself, okay, you know, how do I want this process that we're about to go through to change me? So, you know, mm -hmm. we say at the Passover Seder each year, how is this night different from all other nights? 
Um, one of my favorite teachers once said, well, how will you be different this night? And how will you be different going forward yeah. after this you'll, 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 you'll hear a lot of Christian uh, pastors and priests today uh, in, in churches talking about just that. How they, they'll, be, they'll be relating the crucifixion, for example, to addiction and other kinds of pain uh, that, that, mm. that we come out of. Um, Syrah, yeah. when we spoke earlier, you mentioned deprivation as a common thread for Muslims, Christians, and Jews during these observances. What did you mean by that? Well, the deprivation of, of food and drink during the day, and there's a lot of other elements also that we abstain from during Ramadan, smoking, a list of other things. So when you when you feel that hunger, when you feel that thirst throughout the day, you're constantly reminded of why you're doing it, of your faith, and constantly reminded of the presence of God. And I know when you're younger, you're told, you know, you fast so you can empathize with those less fortunate from you. There are people that live every day hungry and every day thirsty, not knowing where their next meal or sip of water may come from. And I think at its elementary level, it is about empathy. But also for me, it's this, just this constant reminder of God's presence and just self-reflection. And like Eileen said, the changes we want to make to ourselves, you're really thinking about that. And when you deprive of your, yourself of these basic needs, water and food, you realize that some of the these trivial things that we kind of bother ourselves with regularly outside of this holy month, you realize really how trivial they are. Once you take away food and water, you're not worried about this yeah. gossip or this little um, drama that you might have. You're you're just thinking about about your faith. Thank you for that. We, we have to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll continue our Good Friday Passover Ramadan discussion about interfaith relations in our community. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm a Christian. My colleague Eileen Prusher is a Jew. My colleague Syra Anwar is a Muslim. And we're talking about the fact that Good Friday, Passover, and Ramadan intersect today and what that means for interfaith relations in our community. Now, along those lines, here's another really important commonality we discussed for our three faiths at Easter, Passover, and Ramadan, charitable giving, which, let's face it, speaks to the heart of the humane hope and compassion any religion is supposed to be about. Jews call it tzedakah, Christians call it karitas, Muslims call it zakat. And in fact, zakat is one of the five pillars of Islam. Cyrus, since that's the case, how does zakat play out for Muslims during the month of Ramadan? So zakat is a portion of your wealth with your expenses subtracted that can be given at any point during the year. But I know I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about the night of power, how just your deeds are multiplied during Ramadan. So it's almost strategic and, you know, worth more to give during Ramadan, particularly during those last 10 nights. So a lot of Muslims choose to give their zakats, their 2.5% of their wealth um, to charity during this month. I, I do it, you know, to be strategic and, you know, with statistics, mm -hmm. especially during those last 10 nights, hoping that I'll be giving the majority of that wealth on a night that's, like I said, worth a thousand months. So uh, right. many and, Muslims participate in zakats during during Ramadan. Yeah, and I think any Christian can identify. I mean, during during the Christmas season, for example, that's, that's when the checkbook's open uh, for Christians. And, and Eileen, during Passover, how, how does that how does that play out? 
Yeah, it's it's somewhat similar. And by the way, Tim, I'm impressed with your ability to pronounce all of these really well. Um, but um, there are some linguists that say there might even be a link between the word sadaka and the word zakat. They sound they sound somewhat similar. Um, but it's this idea that you are supposed to also give a percentage of your income. Um, pretty much every major holiday, there is a um, you know a expectation to do um, you know some donation. Sometimes it can be money. Sometimes it can be giving to food banks and that kind of thing. Um, and at the Passover Seder, you started off by saying, um, all who are hungry, let them come and eat. So, you know, you, you're supposed to try to, you know, open your doors at, you know, at the major meals to other people. And if you can't do that, then to think about people who are food insecure in your community right. and how can you help them with that? And, you know, I, I guess I would just say, you know, last thing, you know, when I grew up, you know, matzo was kind of fun. And after a week, you're tired of it. But what I realized that there are some beautiful metaphors around the idea of, you know, bread is kind of puffed up and you're 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 puffed up most of the time. And 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 the matzo is sort of um, it's kind of represents humility. Right. You've got to kind of like let go a little bit of your arrogance and realize, you know, any of us, um, you know, could start out, you know, in the bottom uh, of of the barrel, right. really, whether it's as a slave or as a person who's just struggling economically. Right. So it, it really is a time to think about, uh, you know, people uh, and, you know, giving giving charity, but also, you know, how else are we going to help people right. in society? The, there but for the grace of God is, 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 is uh, you know, didn't is a saying that just didn't come from from nothing. Um, exactly. And 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 for, for my fellow Christians, uh, in in terms of uh, their their uh, traditions, I would point out that uh, alms giving is very important during Lent, the forty days leading up to Easter, the prep preparatory time. But this also brings us to what we agreed was one more very important commonality of these three faiths: the idea that God speaks to the world not through the rich and powerful, but through the underdog like the Israelites, or a poor carpenter's son, like Jesus, or an orphan, like Muhammad. They all experienced persecution. Um, I'll, I'll just mention a quick anecdote. About a decade ago, at an interfaith event at, at my own church, I was sitting with um, at an imam from a local uh, mosque, and he was looking up at the, the crucifix that we have uh, with, with Jesus hanging on the crucifix, and he was looking at the, the letters I-N-R-I, above Jesus, and he asked me what that stood for, and I said that was Latin for um, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And immediately the imam looked at me and says, ah, so they, the Romans were mocking him. And I, I was really impressed that he got it, and I, I said, yes. And he says, yes, just as Muhammad the prophet was was persecuted when he was when he was establishing Islam. Um, as I said, the, all of the central figures of these faiths experience persecution. Um, and I want to ask the two of you, why does that matter so much? Eileen, why, why does that matter so much? Well, I think, uh, you know, to remind us all, you know, you know, Moses is really the son of slaves um, because the Pharaoh has ordered for the firstborn uh, sons to be to be killed because they're worrying that the Jews are getting too numerous in Egypt and might rise up in some way. Uh, you know, instead, his mother casts him into the Nile and Miriam follows him and he gets, you know, adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. And you probably all know the rest of that story. But I, I think one of the things that's inspiring is that when he gets the call to duty, so to speak, um, from God, he basically says, you talking to me like I'm not up to this. I am not a good spokesman. He actually says something that like literally means like I have a heavy tongue and and, you know, the commentators have wondered, did he have a speech impediment or a stutter or whatever it was? 
he's understood to be not particularly articulate and yet he's the one who's chosen to do the job and and he's kind of uh you know the the idea of of an underdog is quite interesting because uh he sees the injustices and then he escapes from the palace and he's kind of hiding out when god says you've got to go back and give my message right. um I think all of these, um, you know, um, uh, the leaders that we're talking about today as, as kind of, you know, religious leaders or or um, or prophets were really messengers of God with a message and and sort of not sort of thrusting himself into the limelight and saying, hey, I'll do it. I want to be the one, but kind of being, um, you know, drawn into it uh, because uh, maybe because he was quite humble in many ways that that is something that i think people find quite inspiring and saira muhammad was also a, an underdog and was certainly persecuted at the outset of his mission again why does that matter so much in terms of conveying this 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 particular faith to its followers and the world that's right he was the epitome of an underdog he was an orphan he was illiterate he the only thing he was really notable for before he became our prophet was being an honest man so when these big revelations came to this, you know, simple man who was just known for being honest, it really having someone like that carry this big revelation, it just establishes equity and, and justice as the basis of everything, as the basis of our faith. And it really shook up the status quo in Arabia at the time that, right. you know, you can't buy your way to the top. You can't buy your way into getting these revelations from God. So it was it was big to have him in his status receive this message from God and have the enormous task of relaying that message throughout Arabia. So we agree there are a lot of things Christianity, Judaism, and Islam have in common, but of course there are also important differences and misunderstandings and misconceptions. One big difference involving Christianity that I know is troublesome for Jews and Muslims and that is the claim that Jesus was divine as well as human, that he was God who came among us as a human being. As a Catholic, I'd like to ask the two of you, does that admittedly unusual aspect of Christianity make it harder for Jews and Muslims to have interfaith communication with Christians, Eileen? I don't I don't really think it does, to be quite honest, at least not from my perspective. I mean, it, it's certainly a difference and you know we might have you know different theological viewpoints i mean every year i'm always stunned that the the passover haggadah that i've been talking about believe it or not it leaves moses out of the story i mean moses is you know in the in the torah and we read about you know portions of it week after week for months where he's mentioned but the rabbis decided that they were concerned that moses would be elevated to being a kind of demigod and they they didn't want that so you know it's interesting there are those theological differences but i don't think that it gets in the way of um respect and understanding and cooperation to to be honest um mm -hmm. i mean I'm, I'm here in boca raton and i know that there's this wonderful organization called brica the boca raton interfaith clergy association um and i think there you know there have been uh, so many occasions where, you know, the the three different faiths are able to come together yeah. uh, around issues of concern in the community. And I think, um, you know, the 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 nature of exactly how we see God and God's messengers uh, on this earth doesn't tend to be one that I think we're mm -hmm. we're particularly stuck on now, maybe a few hundred years ago, but less so yeah. today, in and, my opinion. And, and Syrah, today, d does that 
claim of divinity for Jesus also create interfaith difficulties for Muslims when, when they're approaching Christians? I wouldn't say that specifically, but I think that just acknowledging Jesus, I think, facilitates these conversations because in Islam, Jesus is also a revered prophet. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, that's a gateway to, I think, having productive conversations is we have this huge commonality in respecting this huge historical figure. While we don't recognize divinity in Jesus, we do recognize and respect him and uh, acknowledge him as a prophet with a message from God. Mm -hmm. Um so no, I, I wouldn't say it, it drives a wedge, but is, Islam being very uh, iconophobic, you're never you're never going to see you know a right. portrait of Jesus or anything like that. But mm -hmm. as far as respecting him, a, a huge commonality. All right. Now, we're talking mainly today about Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, but we certainly don't want to forget the other faith groups in our community, such as Hindus, who last month observed their sacred spring celebration, Holi, and Buddhists, who next month celebrate the birth of the Buddha. And we certainly don't want to forget people who identify as atheists, many of whom also have re robust spiritual lives, even if they don't believe in the existence of God. But there is one last religious group I want to remember today, and that's women. Women through the centuries have gotten the short end of the stick in our religion. So I want to ask the two of you to tell us about a heroic woman we should know about in Judaism and Islam. A figure like the Virgin Mary, Jesus's mother, who was the towering example of strength and compassion in my faith, Christianity. Eileen, can you offer us one from Judaism? Well, I, I think the most natural one to talk about, particularly during Passover, would be Miriam, uh, sometimes also referred to her as Miriam, the prophet. Um, she's Moses's older brother. Um, as a kid, I only knew about her, you know, kind of sending the basket down the river and then helping uh, his actual, according to some stories, some midrashim, right. that he's, she was involved in getting his his actual biological mother to, you know, be his his nurse. Um, but then after they cross, later on, you know, after they crossed the sea, um, it says in the Bible that she led the women uh, in song and um, and, you know, the women were, right. you know, using timbrels and music. So she's associated right. with that and with bringing water. Uh -huh. And um, and I, I would say just that, you know, feminists have kind of we're, really brought her back into the narrative more right. and more and lost her leadership. We're running out of time here. and I just want to make sure I get Syrah in to, to offer a, a, a woman figure from Islam. Absolutely. And I think one who single-handedly busts a lot of the Western misconceptions of women is the first Muslim who, who accepted the message that was delivered to Muhammad was his wife, Khadija. She right. was literally a boss lady. She was a businesswoman. She mm -hmm. had her own trade caravan. And right. She um, actually employed our prophet to travel mm -hmm. with her caravans, and then right. and she was older than him, and she actually proposed to him. All of these right. just boss moves coming from one historical figure in Islam, I think, is I, just I, admirable to really bust those stereotypes. Eileen Prusher and Saira Anwar, thank you so much, and have a wonderful weekend. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maris. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Thanks for listening. Gracias. Messi. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.